Scripture reading this morning will be taken from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 34 to 38. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We haven't specifically been talking about paradigm shifts, although that's part of it. We've been talking about moral agency and the occasional conflict that that creates as we look at the limits of Scripture and how to hold Scripture in authority and with high esteem while acting as disciples and making decisions that exercise uh, moral thinking and moral acting on our part beyond those limitations. There's a story that takes place here in Acts that's an interesting sort of shift. It's an extension of something that's happened and it's a widening of a circle that, that has in it a component of spirit, very strong, but a component of limitation in human thinking as well and recognitions of a new place to go and a new way to be. You've heard the story, and I've intimated even portions of this perhaps last week because I read the first part of today's text uh, last week as well. But we have in Acts chapter 10 an, an, an opening to something really new. And it's an extension of community that takes place in ways that are beyond comprehension for us today. And I talked last week a bit about Cornelius and his Italian company. Didn't I, did I not? Yes. And I talked a little bit last week about Peter's vision and the basket or the sheet that comes down with everything unclean. Did I not? Good. If you weren't here, let me recap quickly. Cornelius is a centurion of the Italian regiment of the Roman army, probably in charge of a thousand men. He's a diplomat as well as a commander. He's probably an educated man. He's certainly a highly paid man and well-trained man. And in the area in which he worked, he would have had tremendous authority as centurions did. And they would have had tremendous powers of law enforcement, which they did. And out of all of this, uh, his background would have been Roman religion, pantheon of gods, paganism, the sort of amalgamation of Hellenized uh, religion and uh, something much more shamanistic and priv uh, primitive, I imagine. But he comes to Judea an open person and experiences there the teachings of Judaism and the reality of the one God. And the text records for us that he was a God-fearing man 
who prayed faithfully. So something about the religious environment, um, whether it was a desire to get along diplomatically or whether it was something else propelled him or, or brought him to the place where he was at least familiar with Jewish religion and a believer in the one true God. Cornelius has a vision about Peter. He's praying and he's told to find Peter. And meanwhile, Peter has a vision of a sheet being lowered with everything unclean to eat in it. And the commanding voice in the vision, the voice of God says, kill and eat, Peter. And Peter says, no, I've been a vegetarian since I was a boy. Okay, he didn't say that. You've got to, all right, never mind. Kill and eat, Peter. He said, no. And then the voice says, who are you to say that what I have declared clean is unclean? And about then, or shortly thereafter, there was a knock on his door, and the servants of Cornelius had arrived, and they said, we want you to come with us. Now, it's a very exciting story when you lay it out in terms of this very quick sort of sequence of things, this what would seem serendipitous, but we understand from Scripture is God-ordained and God-timed and God-led. Peter understands what this is about finally. He goes with these men and he's uh, received into Cornelius's house. He has fellowship with them and uh, there's a, a, a new sort of understanding. The expansion in today's work and word comes in what happens uh, later on in this passage. We read from 34 to 48 this morning, but I'm going to pick up at verse 39. Excuse me, 39. Acts 10, 39. Peter is speaking, and he says, We are witnesses of everything he, Jesus, did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but was witnessed excuse, by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them a few days. All part of the story you know. One Lord, one Spirit, one baptism. But it goes on. Chapter 11. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the, un, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. 
Now the gospel has been presented, right? Does this remind you of an Old Testament story? Jonah is called to go somewhere. He preaches in Nineveh. The response is overwhelming, and he's devastated. Oh, the church is full. I can't take it. Everyone, by order of decree of the king, no less, puts on sackcloth and ashes and repents and bows before God in Nineveh, and the city is spared, and Jonah is miserable. Miserable. Because God hasn't kept his word to destroy these people. And now the gospel has been preached to the Gentiles. They've received the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized by water. And the circumcised, the brethren, are saying, what is this? Jesus belongs only to me. (laughs) Oh, Don't we hear people today saying Jesus belongs only to them? I hope you askew that when you hear it. I hope you see it for what it is. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying. Well, you know the story. We're going to pick it up in verse 15 toward the end of his story. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as it had come on us in the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave us the same gift as he, them as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens in all of this. The church begins to grow. It had been scattered by persecution, verse 19, and the message is going out, and in verse 20 we find men from Cyprus and Cyrene and Antioch and the Greeks telling the good news about the Lord Jesus, and a great number of people start believing and turning to the Lord. Now, the shift that's interesting here is the shift from a Jewish-only kind of mentality to one that includes Greeks and Gentiles. I don't think we always can appreciate how big a shift this really is. Because what it represents is the opening of something that had been a closed system, for, essentially closed system for thousands of years. Tradition, people's ideas their read of scripture, their understanding of where the Lord's favor was given and where it was withheld, their understanding of what it meant to be a believer in Yahweh. All of this comes back to this exclusivism that had developed. And in the early church, these actions of Peter's and these things that are happening began to open up the gospel began to open up the world, began to open up the people to a different reality. And I wonder today what it might mean for us if the communion life we celebrate in Christ were opened up further and extended. Because we have this notion of table 
we have this idea of people connecting around food. You notice that when Peter is with these Gentiles, they share a meal. They share hospitality. And part of the questioning of Peter is that he eats with Gentiles. What did they say of Jesus when he was here? If he were really a prophet, he would know that the people he's eating with are Gentiles, publicans, and sinners. Hmm. I think that says something that we need to pay attention to. There's a perception that God's grace doesn't include certain people. That the circle of God's fellowship doesn't involve people that we deem unworthy or outside of that fellowship. And yet that's not what is happening here in Acts. It's not what's happening in the early church. What is happening is that as the message goes forth of God's reconciliation to humanity, his love and his grace, people are being added to the table. Jews are eating in the homes of Gentiles, and Gentiles are participating with Jews. And in this fellowship, communion is enacted because Jesus commanded his disciples, whenever you gather and whenever you eat, do this in remembrance of me. And so I challenge you, what would it be like if the communion table were extended? We sit here this morning, recipients of grace, being reminded at the table today of God's sacrifice and his love and the good news that he comes to bring humanity. The mission, not just for Jews as it turns out, but for Gentiles in the world. And I wonder who in our own minds we've excluded from the table. I wonder where we've drawn the circles politically or socially today. I wonder who we've deemed worthy or unworthy to sit with us at that table. And I wonder if the voice that spoke then doesn't speak now. Who are you and who am I to decide who the Lord declares worthy or clean or pick your language? Because when we sit at this table, it is the table of grace. It is the table of the gathering of the unworthy who have been declared worthy by the blood of the Lamb. It is the gathering of those forgiven and freed and willing to celebrate that freedom. It is a remembrance of God's act in opening the door to salvation, not closing it. So, as you reread today, chapters 10 and 11 of Acts, as you look at the story of Cornelius and Peter, as you reflect on the juxtaposition of the hospitalities extended, as you think about what it would mean for the servants of one to enter the servants of another's home, or for Peter to enter Cornelius's home, as you consider the walls that divided those people in the first century and the walls that divide us from people today, 
I hope you'll reflect on how we can widen the circle, how we can teach and preach a gospel that makes the invitation open. And we'll let the Lord decide in the end who gets to sit at the table.